Praise the Lord. Man, God is faithful. He promises where two or three gather, there he will be in their midst, and he's making good on that promise today. I'm so thankful for this tangible sense of God's presence that we're experiencing uh, right now. And my prayer today is that 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 would continue as we break open God's Word and as we look at the book of First Peter. We're in the sermon series. It's called Different. And it's, it's walking through the letter of Peter to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And here are all these, these believers of Jesus. They've been scattered because of persecution throughout this, this, this piece of land known as Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. They're, they're suffering all kinds of, of persecution and things are going wrong in their life. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them and to say, hey, as followers of Jesus, you're called to live in a different way. This world is not your home. You're in the world, but you're not of it. And so as you live and as you journey with Jesus in this world, God's going to use you. As you live differently and distinctly, God's going to use you uh, in, in, in his mission in the world. And, and so live differently. So we're going to be in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Uh, several years ago, my son Paul was in a production of Midsummer Nights, a Midsummer Nights Dream. And this was a fourth grade production and adaptation of that Shakespearean classic. And the night had come for the performance. And because our grandparents, his grandparents, live um, far away from us, they're not able to be at all the things uh, that they would like to be at. So my job is to video it and to upload it and to send it to them so they can see what their grandkids are up to. And so I came to the performance and I was ready to video it. I had my iPhone ready and sure enough the kids took the stage and I got my phone out and I click record and I'm about a minute into it and I get this message that says memory full and it stops recording. My, my phone was full of all kinds of other stuff and uh, I didn't have the expanded memory on my phone and I wasn't going to pay more money for iCloud storage. I'm just stubborn that way. And, and so I was sitting there scrambling. I was trying to think, what do I delete? What can I delete? Uh, how many videos of our dog can I delete so that I can have room for, for Paul here? And I was scrambling and, and, and the guy next to me sort of saw what was going on. I think he had been there before. He said, hey, don't worry. I'll share my video with you. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Great, thank you. And this killed really two birds with one stone. Number one, I, I was unprepared. I was out of memory and this person was going to share their video with me. So, so great, solves that problem. We're going to have a video of the performance. The other problem is, have you ever tried to hold your hand like this for 30 minutes? Like it's, it's not easy to do. And so I was kind of already bracing for that. Okay, I'm going to have to hold my hand like this for 30 minutes. So that, so that Grandma and Grandpa can see Paul as Lysander, one of the main characters in the play. So he had lots of speaking lines. And, and what I remember from that, from that performance is he did an amazing job, just a Tony Award-winning performance of Midsummer's Night's Dream. And so at the end of the performance, uh, the gentleman shared the video with me. And I get home, and I'm, I'm going about the work of, of uploading it so that grandparents can see this just great, phenomenal job that Paul did uh, in this production. And as I'm reviewing the video, I notice that my, my, my friend, who was bailing me out of a tight spot there, I noticed that, that his video skills, they had a lot to be desired. I don't think he was trained in how to properly capture dramatic performances. In fact, 
the entire video was an extreme close-up zoom of his kid. There was literally no other context. His kid was part of the Athenian chorus. They had like three lines, and they all set them together. And you didn't, even, you didn't even see the other members of the Athenian chorus. You just saw his kid there delivering their lines, lifeless, monotone. Um, nowhere near as great as Lysander, who did an amazing job, but it was just zoomed up on him for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes, you get a zoom in on one kid in the Athenian chorus. Uh, just, a, just a really disappointing uh, uh, a video there. I know what you're thinking. Pastor, you got to be prepared. Come to the performance with your phone ready. This is your fault. This is not his fault. And you're, you're exactly right. But that was an awful video. But what made it awful is that a lack of awareness that this is not a monologue. This is not a one-person production. What gives this thing beauty is context. What gives this production beauty is the fact that it was done with other people. It takes everybody. It takes the person playing Hermia and the person playing Lysander and the Athenian chorus. It takes, it takes all of them, all of them, to make it a great production. And so you want to see that full picture, right? But here we are zoomed in on one character in the Athenian chorus. And, and I think that's a little bit of a parable about how we think about faith. Who we've been called to be in Jesus is, is, is special. It, it's, it's, you hear what Peter's saying there. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood called out of darkness into wonderful light. It's pretty special what God does in our life when he transforms and he changes us and we come to him in salvation. But it's not something that we embrace by ourselves or individually. It's in the context of a community. It's in the context of this overall picture of what God is doing to save the world. But what we struggle with, particularly in an American context, is we tend to think of faith as individual and private. I mean, we gave the world this expression. This, this emerged from America. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Your personal, your own unique personal Lord and Savior, all to yourself. Have you done that? We gave that to the world. And while a relationship with Jesus is personal, there is an individual choice that we make. It's also in the context of a community that we live this out. There's a sociologist, his name's Robert Putnam, and he wrote an essay in the mid-90s. It's called Bowling Alone. And here was his thesis. He, he discovered that bowling had never been more popular. Bowling alleys were pro, pro, cropping up all over the country. Revenue in bowling was up. People were buying their own bowling balls, and people were going and, and bowling and getting better at the sport. So bowling was up. Americans liked to bowl. But what they didn't want to do is bowl in a league. League participation in bowling was way down compared to the 50s. And his thesis is, it's not that we don't like bowling. Here's what we don't like. I don't want to bowl on someone else's schedule. I don't want to bowl with people I don't know. I, I want to bowl in a way that fits me 
in what I'm doing. If I join a league, I've got to join at a time that's mutually agreeable for lots of other people, and I just can't do that. There's an important lesson for the church there. It's not that we don't love Jesus. We love Jesus. We love what Jesus is doing in our lives, but we're hesitant to make commitments to his people, this local body known as the, the church. And, and, and are we willing to follow Jesus within the context of a community of people? You see, there is this personal choice that we all have to make to, to follow Jesus, and the Bible clearly lays that out. But the Bible emerges from a community of people. And it's a highly communal book. And it's inviting us to be part of the, look at the book of Acts, the church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, to be a part of what God is doing, to join ourselves to the church and to join God in mission with this spiritual community of people. And so I have some questions for you as we dig into 1 Peter 2. Are we willing to commit to following Jesus in the context of spiritual community? Do we recognize that this spiritual community offers diverse perspectives on things that are non-essential to our faith? And are we willing to have liberty there? Are we willing to be held accountable for the choices that we make? Are we willing to be held accountable for our ethics? Are we willing to be challenged by others for our ultimate good? in ways that make us uncomfortable. These are all the things that happen when you are in community with others who are also trying to follow Jesus. And oftentimes the answer is no. No, that, that, that's not for me. Give me Jesus and a Bible and a mountain somewhere and a cup of coffee, and that's really all I need. But that's not what Scripture calls us to. Peter says you're a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a chosen people. You see, we were created for community, but our world is built for individuals. Our world is built for individuals. Specifically, look at the world of, of business. We want to separate individuals from their money as easily as we can, and so we invite individuals to make personal consumeristic decisions for stuff that individuals want to buy. I don't think this would sell as much as it did. It's called an iPhone. I don't know if they would have sold as many if they'd have called it a Wii phone. The iPhone invites us into the iLife and invites us to invest in the iCloud and all the other i things you can do with your iPhone. It's not a Wii phone, it's an iPhone. And with this iPhone, you take selfies, not ussies. You mainly take selfies with your iPhone. We were created for community, but we live in a world built for individuals. And that focus on our individuality, it bleeds over into the church and into our walk with Jesus. And so Peter is saying following Jesus, yes, is an individual pursuit, but not exclusively. It's one that must be undertaken in the context of a community of faith. And let me tell you who he's writing to. Primarily Gentiles. These are people who are not part of the Israel story. These are, these are people that have come to faith in Jesus and they found something life-giving there. And so they put their faith in Jesus 
And what Peter is, is doing as he's writing to this group of Gentiles is he's reminding them of Israel's story. That, that, that God began a work in Israel. He parted the Red Sea. He created this people. And he is saying to these Gentiles who are putting their faith in Jesus, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that did all of this in the past for this community of people is now through Christ inviting you into that story, inviting you to be a part of that covenant people. And so they, these Gentiles are now invited in to be a part of this rich story of God's dealings with Israel. And now a new people of God are emerging, made up of Jew and Gentile. It's the church. And what makes the church so special is that Israel failed in its original vocation. It was called in, in the book of Isaiah to be a light to the nations. All people would come to this light through the people of Israel. And Israel failed in that vocation, and, and so Jesus was sent. And Jesus now begins to form this new people through his life, death, and resurrection, and through the giving of the Holy Spirit. This new people, known as the church, are fulfilling what Israel was originally called to do, to be this light to the nations so that all might come and experience what God is doing. And so we come to chapter 2. And I, wanna, I want us to read that. Look at verse 4. Chapter 2, Peter says to this community of people scattered, undergoing persecution, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Wow, this is the central institution in the life of Israel. This is a really big deal. And what Peter is saying to Gentiles who've now put their faith in Jesus, you are now grafted into this, this body of people that stand, bef that, that stand before God and, and help the people experience the fullness and the life of God, this holy priesthood. You're now part of that. Wow. What do we do as part of this holy priesthood? Offering spiritual sacrifices— acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So now Peter is bringing in these Old Testament texts, and he's going to the, the prophet Isaiah. And he's saying to these Gentiles, These texts are now your texts. This story is now your story. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. This is verse 7. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Look at verse 9. But you are, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, Gentiles, once you were scattered, once you had, once you were not a people, but now that you've come to Christ, you've become the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy in Christ. This is good news, isn't it? that we are invited to be a part of this people, 
Let's unpack a little bit of what Peter is saying. He starts by saying that Jesus is a living stone. Now that's an interesting metaphor for Jesus. It sounds oxymoronic to say that a stone would be alive because a stone is this inanimate object with no potential for life. But, but, but Peter is saying that Jesus is a, a living stone, that the resurrection is so powerful. The resurrection is so transformative. Even something like a rock, when merged with the power of God, has the potential to live. Dead things, things that have no potential to live in Christ, become alive. And so Jesus is this living stone. And then watch this, just as Jesus was brought to new life in the resurrection, just as he's a living stone, we have the potential to be living stones. We also are living stones. Now, what was built was stone, the temple. It's an impressive structure. It's fixed in the imagination of, uh, of, the, of, of, of Jews. And it was one stone stacked on top of another, and it made this very impressive structure that was intended to, to point the imagination towards God. And it was a place in which God was said to dwell. And what Peter is saying is, is all of that has now been fulfilled in Christ. We no longer leave the, need these dead, inanimate stones stacked together so that we might commune with God. We have a stone that is alive, and we are alive. And we all are, 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 all of us as living stones, we have unique shapes and features and colors. And what God does in his Holy Spirit, he fits all of those living stones together and creates this spiritual dwelling place in which the world might encounter and experience the goodness and the love of God. It's something only God can do. And friends, here's, here's some good news for us. When we were dead, when we had no potential for life, Jesus brings life. His resurrection is our resurrection. And because of the life that he brings, we can be part of this spiritual house in which the world is invited to come and to experience the goodness of God. And Peter quotes these Old Testament texts, and he, and he tells us that in this process of becoming this spiritual house, Jesus was rejected. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He was, he was rejected by the people in charge of the temple, the people in charge of all the dead stones that were stacked together. When Jesus said, God is doing something new, they said, oh, no, he's not. We don't want any part of that. And so Jesus was rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. And in that moment, he had a choice. He could hate those who rejected him. He could get even with those who rejected him. He certainly had the power to do that. But he didn't do any of that. He loved those who rejected him. He forgave those who wronged them. He took the first step in reconciling with those who broke the relationship with him. He loved, he forgave, he, he reconciled. And there's a message to those who have been rejected. There's a message that Jesus wants us to see to those who've been rejected and marginalized and pushed to the side. So we've got one week of school under our belt. I've got some good news for you. There's only 175 more days of school left. You did it. Man, you're on, you're on the downside now. You only have 175 more. Man, hopefully, hopefully you've got your summer plans already, already lined up. This is exciting. 
But as I was thinking about the kids going back to school this week, it reminded me of my own school experience. And I went to a small school, exponentially smaller than the school that, that my son goes to, Bentonville High School. And I was thinking about my high school experience, and in our lunchroom, there were groups of people. Even in a small school, even though everybody knew everybody's name, you could go to the lunchroom, and you could very quickly see where the groups of people were. There were the athletes over here. There were the honor students over here. There were the musicians, the, the artists over here. And I, I remember not really fitting in, in any of those groups, really. Um, I, I sort of bounced between the three, actually, uh, except the honor student group. <laughs> I never had the credentials for that group. I was back and forth between the artistic kids and the athletic kids. Never could really make up my mind. But there was a fourth group. And this fourth group, I, I really couldn't pinpoint what brought them together. All I remember is they weren't athletes, they weren't honor students, and they weren't artists or musicians. All I remember, it was like a catch-all group. It was the group where everybody else went. And, and, and what they had in common was their rejection by the other three groups. That this, this group that had been marginalized, this group that had been rejected, found a way to survive and to share life together in, in the lunchroom. And I was talking to Paul about that, and, and what I understand about high school these days is not a whole lot has changed. I mean, there's affinity groups. There's just more, more groups. There's more stuff to be involved in at a bigger school. And so you've got all your different subgroups and all your kids that are involved in different things. And even in the midst of, of, of kids being attached with, with one of these groups where they can rally around, hey, we're the musicians or we're the athletes or we're the dramatic group or well, they're all kind of dramatic, honestly. But, but we're, we're, whatever group it is, there still is that group that is like, really all we have in common is we're rejected by all the other groups. This is, this is what sort of brings us together. And I worry about the fabric of our nation. I worry about this, this nation of individuals that we live in uh, because people are created for community. We're created to be in relationship with other people and when we are rejected or when we are marginalized, so often that experience of rejection finds a way of, of, of people coming together and having that in, in common. The, the, the side note to Putnam's article about bowling alone is that he gave a reason as to why people have become more individual. And, and he, he sort of had this little section on, on television blamed the advent and the multiplication of, of television and cable TV on, on why we've become more individualized. That was like 1995. What would he have thought about social media? Because what's happening in our world is, is we're becoming more and more individual, we're becoming more and more disconnected from community and because there's something inside of us that, that we belong together, we need to fit together with other people, instead of finding that across the street with our neighbor, we're finding it online. We're, we're, we're coming together on megapixels. And there are people that we can find online, and social media does a great job of connecting us with these people. They have the same experience of rejection. 
they have the same experience of, of marginalization. And, and, and social media can, can bring us, bring those things together. And people end up saying things like, man, this, this chat group I'm in or this affinity group I'm in online, like those are my people. Those people get me. Those people understand me. Even though I'm in Arkansas and they're in the Northeast and Florida and California and spread out all over the world, instead of saying my people are those in close proximity to me, my people becomes people out there in megapixel land who have the same experience of rejection and marginalization that I have. And sometimes this is not a good thing. And it shows up in, in really, really bad ways. Uh, in, in 2009, a group began to study the rise of hate groups. And so from 2009, when America elected its first minority president, to, to the present day, this, this group that studies the emergence of hate groups in the United States discovered an uptick in these groups and an uptick in membership. And, and that number in the United States has hovered for this period of time around 800 to 900 groups in, in, in our country. And what brings those groups together is all kinds of grievances, all kinds of anger about why I lost my job, why I don't make as much money as I used to. And those groups need a scapegoat. And so that scapegoat becomes minorities, it becomes immigrants, it, it becomes a whole host of things, a whole reason as to why life is not working out for me. And, and so these, these groups connect online and people sitting behind screens say, I finally found my people. Man, these are the people that get me. And these hate groups are not really sure what they're for, but they're very clear in who they're against. And they're very clear in, in the grievances that they, they have. Now, there's a lot of layers to that onion, and we can't unpeel them all today. But I only say that to say that we're created for community. We're created to be in relationship with one another. And in a world filled with people who are willing to unite with others, not because of a, a, a good or a true or a beautiful cause, but they're willing to unite with others because of who they hate or who they have a grievance against. Peter is saying the church is called to be a healing balm to that kind of world. The church is called to be a healing presence to that kind of world. Peter is saying there are people in the world that feel rejected. There are people in the world that are angry. There are people in the world that are marginalized. There are there's all kinds of anger and, and hate in the world. And Peter is saying the church is to be this holy priesthood, this royal nation, to stand in the, in the crossroads of all that and to say, there is a God that loves you. There's a God that heals your hurt. There's a God that is with you. There's a God that has a plan and a purpose for your life. Let me tell you about my life. I was in darkness. 
I was in darkness, but God called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. And now we stand in the midst of a world filled with hate and we declare the praises of him who's done this amazing thing in our life. You see, Jesus was rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. But friends, know this. This is the gospel. When we were rejected, Jesus chooses us. Jesus chooses us. He says, you are my people. I choose you. And friends, also, when we were living in darkness, when we're living in darkness, Jesus chooses us as his own. When we're living in darkness, Jesus brings us into the light. Jesus brings us into the light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, or verse 9, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who we're called to be. Once we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as, as we finish up today, I want us to, to understand our vocation. I want us to understand our calling as a, a church. God calls us to fulfill this vocation, something that Israel failed to do, but now we, through the power of Christ, through the resurrection, through the Holy Spirit that is at work within our lives, we have the potential to reflect the image of God to the world, the character of Jesus to the world. We are a, a kingdom of priests. We're all priests today. What, is it, what does it mean to be this royal priesthood? At the end of the day, it means this. To be a royal priesthood means simply this, that changed people, they change people. Changed people change people. You've been changed. You've been transformed. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You're now part of the royal priesthood. Changed people change people. On Monday, we're going to open our doors to a ministry. It's called the Community Table. We've been open since June. And I love the, 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 the logo, the symbol that we developed for this ministry. It, it's, it's a farmhouse table. And the image of table, friends, is the healing balm that our world needs. For all the grievances, for all the hate, for all the misunderstanding in the world— I, I'm just convinced that if, if we could get around a table and break bread together, we could work a lot of this out. We could at least have a civil conversation about it. And, and what the community table does is there are people in our world, people in our community, who they run out of food. They've got this supply of food, and by the end of the week, it's out, and they need something to supplement that. And so we've developed a ministry where people come in, they're welcomed. They enjoy a cup of coffee. They get a shopping basket. They choose what vegetables they want. They choose what canned goods they want. They choose what protein they want. And it's our church saying, the door's open, y'all. Come, fellowship, sit at the table, take what you need, leave what you have, share what you have. But all, all are welcomed. All are invited. It's a, it's a royal priesthood. It's a, it's a gathering of changed people who desire to change people for the good. 
And as we have developed that ministry through the years, I met a, a gentleman named Kenneth. And Kenneth has been a part of our uh, a food ministry for quite some time, both as a recipient, and he's also helped out a little bit every now and then. And I was talking to Kenneth about his experience and, and, and what his daily or weekly rhythms are like, and he shared with me that he goes to several of these ministries. There's a lot of churches around the area that, that have similar ministries. And, and I, I wanted him to tell me about his experience and what that was like. And, and Kenneth said, you know, something different happens when I come here. And, and these were his exact words. He said, you know, when, when, when I come here, I just feel different. I, I, I walk into these doors, I receive what I need, and, and it just feels different. feels good. It feels like I'm welcome. It feels like I'm accepted. You see, there's a kingdom of priests that are opening those doors. There's changed people who desire to see God change people through their lives. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. I'll tell you another story about a family that became connected to our church, and, and they went through something awful. It was, a, it was a terrible thing that happened. And this family was relatively new to our church, and they were sort of new to just church in general. And I watched as the kingdom of priests do what priests do. You showed up. And, and in showing up in the midst of a tragedy, sometimes you had a casserole, and sometimes you had some kind of food item, and you just showed up, and, 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 and you did what the church does. It was a commonplace experience for me. I, I've seen church people do this all my life, but to this family that was experiencing it for the first time and walking through this really dark time, I remember having a conversation with, with one of the one of the parents in this family, and they said, um, so, so, so is this what you do? Like, do you do this for everybody? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, when you laugh, we laugh. When you cry, we cry. When you hurt, we hurt. It's sort of how it works around here. And he said, everybody? Like, you do this for everybody? I'm like, well, we try. It's what it means to be part of a, a kingdom of priests. It's what it means to be part of a, a church, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then he said this. He said, I have never been loved like this. I've never been loved like this. Friends, that's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. I've never been loved like this. To a world that feels rejected, to a world filled with hate, to a world with all kinds of grievances against who knows what, in a world where people just can't get along. Here's Peter saying, but you, you're not like that. You're different. You're, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And could we, could we go out into the world and could we live faithfully, live according to God's will for our life? Could we go out into the world and live this way and have the world say, I have never been loved like that. That's our calling today. And I believe we can do that together as a church. 
And, and so, could I ask you this question? With you and the Holy Spirit, I, I want you to just wrestle with this question. Lord, how do you want me to be more engaged in this local body? Like, how do you want me to be more engaged in this local church? Lord, I recognize that I'm, I'm part of a kingdom of priests. I'm part of a holy nation. I'm part of a, a chosen people. I've been changed. And Lord, I, I want you to use me to, to change and transform someone else. And so here's the question. Lord, how can I be more engaged with your people?